Hi, this is uh, Dan Martin, and uh, this is the Next Gen Waterfront Podcast. Uh, and I am talking with somebody who's in the Marina District, I believe, in San Francisco. And uh, Greg, Greg Corey is with me. I have known Greg for many years. We've worked in the same company for a number of those. But he's worked a lot more on resort waterfronts and waterfronts, I guess, all over the world. So, Greg, would you mind giving us an introduction of, of, uh, of your work with waterfronts and just you in general? Sure, Dan. Um, yeah, my start in this field really goes back to when I got a master's in city and regional planning sometime in the dark ages. And I went to the University of Oregon for that program because they were being real pioneers in land, statewide land use planning. Um, and wound up by happenstance doing as my master's thesis, the drafting the economic impacts for the state of Oregon's coastal zone management plan. That got me started. Uh, I quickly learned that I didn't have the app the, the, the patience, if you will, for working in the public sector. So as you know, I joined uh, the, firm, the firm that we worked at. And because I'd had some experience working in the resort sector uh, prior job, I wound up being cultivated into doing mostly resort work uh, and a lot of it in the Caribbean, uh, and then Latin America, and then ultimately in about 45 countries around the world. That's, that's a pretty remarkable track record. Um, if you go back to the very beginning of, uh, of the work that you did on coastlines, and I guess the, even the work you did back in, in grad school, um, how, how would you say we looked at coastal areas uh, compared to how we look at them today? Well, uh, the, the big difference is coast or uh, climate change was not even a, you know, on anybody's radar. Um, good land planning was just the whole principles of you know good stewardship with the land, but um, you know nobody had really taken a look at what was going on with the climate, whether we were really going to be negatively impacted on that. So the real approach to coastal planning and development was it's a great asset. Uh, everybody wants to be on the coast. Everybody wants to be at the beach. Uh, so let's, let's do that. And let's just make sure we do it, do it responsibly. Um, but the, the whole concept of, you know, is, is climate change something where you're going to need to address wasn't on anybody's radar. Did did a, did it did it vary much from between different countries? Uh, the question of stewardship varied tremendously, um, and it, I think that you know the U.S. was much more uh, aware of trying to do good by the land. If you went to China, not so much, or even in Mexico, not so much. Um, the approach was more to kind of monetize it, monetize the coastal coastline, uh, irrespective of whether there's any environmental consequences. Now, I, I know that in the, you mentioned Oregon, and uh, 
coastal zone management there and, and later in California have, have been fairly well codified and uh, uh, restrictive. Um, how about the rest of the U.S.? Is the, are the East Coast states different than the Gulf Coast states? Oregon was the, was the pioneer. California was second. And I actually wound up doing this, the same sort of work for the city of Carmel by the sea, um, almost straight out of grad school as a consultant. Um, and the California coast is so restrictive now. Um, there's, you, you can't really do much any place unless it's got a, a public purpose, unless it's public recreation and orientation. For instance, you might own, uh, um, you know, real estate that you want to develop, but unless it contains a a public recreation, public accommodations, um, kind of element, uh, you won't get a permit. Now, on the other hand, in back in say the Carolinas or in Florida, you can still uh, develop coastal you know, front land uh, for 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 sale real estate. There's a great deal of it up in you know the Florida Panhandle, for instance. At the same time, there's not a lot of it left. Um, the St. Joe Company probably 15 years ago hired a friend of mine to kind of figure out how much land is really available for development from the North Carolina, South Carolina border all the way around to Alabama. And land that was available for development in the private sector was only about two miles of shoreline in that entire sector. That's amazing. Now, would you say that California's early adoption or and Oregon's early adoption um, of, of coastal zone management, would you say that that's actually ten- intentionally or not left them better prepared for climate change because there isn't as much development on the coast? Or were those coasts fairly heavily developed already? They were pretty heavily developed. Um, and <clears throat> of course, California, in a large degree, Oregon as well. Um, you've got topography working in, to your advantage, where um, you know you're you don't have a you know a lot of low hanging fruit, so to speak, in terms of beaches. Um, and but in San Francisco, um, you know that's a coastal area and. We're expecting about five feet of, of sea level rise. Uh, I, I was doing some work for the Port of San Francisco a couple of years ago, much more related to seismic issues, uh, trying to quantify the economic impacts of a major seismic event for the Port of, of San Francisco's uh, waterfront properties. So, so this, the Port has about 500 different um, buildings and, and businesses and, and leases along about a four and a half, five miles of the of the waterfront. And uh, we we're having to quantify what happens if, if any one of those seawall segments gets impacted by a uh, um, major seismic event. But at the same time, 
the resiliency office in, in San Francisco was doing a parallel study as to what happens with sea level rise. And you know, a five foot change in the sea level in San Francisco, which is expected, would have a pretty significant impact. Um, you know, for instance, I think Climate Central quantified that the, the San Francisco airport in Treasure Island, which is planned plan for about 10,000 housing units, uh, and Foster City, which has been a development that's been around since the 60s, all of those are going to be underwater, uh, as opposed to, I've got this little house in St. Augustine, Florida. Well, St. Augustine is going to be underwater, but our house is going to be okay, but it's going to be an island. We can't get to it. Um, Miami Beach is uh, basically gone with, with the same sort of um, sea level rise. Key West is gone. Several of the projects that I've worked on um, in the Carolinas are basically underwater. Kiowa Island, Sea Pines uh, is gone, Bald Head Island, uh, Bahamas, where I've done a lot of work. They've got huge issues. Uh, and even uh, Cancun, which the Mexican development developed starting in the early 70s, you know, that whole coastline has got about 80,000 hotel rooms now. Uh, the island of Cancun itself has got about 28,000, but a large portion of those will be underwater with a five-foot sea level rise. And what, what's our time frame? Is that 2050? That's the, the, the phrase that keeps being talked about or the timing that keeps being talked about um, is in terms of having some real impact. Um, apparently, was the word I just or saw saw something I think earlier today that there's already been um, a faster level of sea level rise on the eastern seaboard. I think it was something you talked to me about some time ago. Um, so it's and we're we're seeing it here. I mean, there's a portion of the seawall at San Francisco that if we get any sort of unusual uh, heavy uh, winter storms, it, you're getting you're getting water, uh, you know, waves breaking on the on the front on the waterfront. What what sort of preparations have you seen along the California coast? Are are people taking it seriously, or are you seeing any impact on land values? I guess those are two separate questions. Yeah, I you know that's that's the big question, and I don't know if you're aware, but the Urban Land Institute issued a report, oh, I think even last month, maybe it was in, no, it was in February of this year, where they they finally said, you know, real estate developers, it's time to wake up. Um, the, um, I just saw something. Yeah, it, they did a study with a, with a um, group that, uh, partners with them. It's a big uh, commercial real estate management company. And they looked at um, 70, over 73,000 properties that are owned by over 300 REITs. And they said 35% of the properties owned by those REITs are exposed to some sort of climate change impacts. And about 6% of them are in the coastal zone. 
I was going to say, I think that report was authored or at least co-authored by, um, uh, by Mary Ludgen of Heitman. Yes. Yes, you're right. And it's, it's worth looking up for anyone who's listening. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty, uh, good, uh, eye-opening study. The, um, uh, but I think that for the most part, people aren't really paying attention yet. Um, and it's partly because of the cost. Um, and the, the, the general, I think, approach has been to, to kind of ignore all of the, the climate change and to go ahead and rebuild rather than making the, the real hard decisions to say, we got a problem, which is we've got to fix for the long term. Uh, there was a, another study as recent reading recently that, that said, you know, the approach we've got to be taking here is um, just to recognize that there's big problems coming and it's coming in a reasonably short period of time. So we've got to somehow figure out how to invest in it and make it work. And it kind of um, uses examples, you know, where during the Cold War we had to make a real investment in in, in weapons and weapon systems. But you know, the the long term benefits not only were economic, but also you know, out of that came the internet, and the, which has really affected the way we. We conduct our lives. Uh, another example is it was the interstate highway system, which fundamentally uh, changed the mobility of America, uh, as you know, impacted our, our our access to the national parks, and, and you know spawned really long term other benefits. Um, but the the bigger economic impacts are not just rebuilding, you know. At real estate assets, but the, the, you know, the potential dislocation of people, uh, industries, and in you know, the investment in the real estate. So it's a, it's a serious issue. I wonder if some of the reaction is almost the reaction of people based on their age, um, because it's almost like a train coming coming at us, and we're strapped to the tracks. But if you're a baby boomer, um, uh, it probably won't affect my, you, but you that much because you know you'll you'll be older and out of the workforce, and you know maybe it'll change where you retire to. Uh, but for Xers and millennials, um, it's pretty serious stuff. I think you see that reflected in attitudes um, of uh, even the Democratic presidential candidates, where one of them is is saying, "Hey, wait, I'm a millennial, so I'm going to have to pay for this." Uh, and and others are not talking so much about it, although there is one who has made it the core of his his campaign. But I, I do wonder if age has something to do with it, where you know the the age of people who are in principally in power right now uh, sort of feel like, well, there's not much we can do about it, and besides, we'll be uh, we'll be off the off the stage by then. Yeah, we're gonna be dead. Well, that 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 all just sort of uh, you know turn Kitty Wampus by your point about. You know, maybe it's going to hit faster than we think. Yeah, uh, I I would agree. I mean, my my son is you know twenty seven now, and he is certainly of the mindset that um, 
there's there's issues big issues come in and he's he's frustrated but by, by the fact that uh, he doesn't see a lot of movement coming down out of the regulatory side and and willingness to go ahead and, and make make an investment um, you know one of the one of the things that currently has been a um, big issue I, I think is the, the whole national flood insurance program which basically grandfathers customers um, in as being covered whenever the new maps are drawn. And you know, there's been a lot of studies on that. That's just this, that's really not sustainable. Uh, there was a one. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of not fair to the, re to the rest of us because I believe, you know, we end up paying out. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There was a uh, Wall Street Journal article, article in 2017 that I happened to clip and it was talking about this exact issue. And um, there was, um, we gave an example of one one house in Houston, it was not in a coastal zone, but in a flood zone, um, that was, you know, it's a $500,000 house and the flood insurance has already paid him $1.8 million um, uh, for repairs from numerous floods. And the frequently flooded properties um, in the in the country, most of which are in Texas and Florida, um, that there's only two percent of those of all those properties covered amount to about thirty percent of the monetary uh, claims, um, and that uh, which is which tells you that you know why are people still rebuilding? Why are they still allowed to be be rebuilding? in flood and hurricane areas. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's actually, and I know we're, we're all about coastal, but um, there's a certain amount of, uh, of the central states involved here, or there are, they are involved to a certain unexpected amount. And what I'm referring to would be the, uh, the flooding in, in the Midwest uh, over the last month in Nebraska and such, um, you know, which are the result of, you know, freakish uh, high rainfall storms um, that flooded because the ground was frozen. Uh, and there was no place for it to go. And uh, I was talking earlier today uh, with a fellow who runs a park system in a small city in the Midwest. And he was, um, he was saying that he and the city are trying to get together and better understand, um, you know, what the ramifications would be for their community if they had a, a sudden downpour like that. And, uh, you know, would that flood their rivers, their streams, their lakes, and uh, you know how could how could they plan for a flood for a uh, stormwater system to to handle that? So it isn't just the coast, but it, I think it is it is uh, it, it is primarily an issue for the coastline. And I, I think you were alluding to the fact that you know you have lots of you know hard edge cliffs along the western um, western seaboard, but um, the eastern seaboard is much much more beach, um, you know, much more land. Is, is that is that your experience and work there too? Absolutely, and as I said, so many so many of those places are are just going to be inundated if the sea level does come up five feet. They're just they're underwater. Period. And in in Miami Beach is is underwater. So what do you do there? Do you build a seawall then that um, is five six feet? 
tall, which then would protect the the landmass, but also eliminate an awful lot of the appeal of living in that area because you're behind the wall, you're not on the beach. Yeah, you know, you you, you sort of hit on an interesting point, and that is. Um, it, when maybe we're not at the five foot sea, sea uh, level rise, but maybe two and a half feet in, you know, presumably like 15 years or so from now, maybe, maybe uh, less. Um, what will it be like to live in these communities? Is, is, is there still going to be value to the real estate, um, the kind of real estate that you've spent uh, uh, many years working in? Is there, is there a way to address this? Interesting. Um quandary, and I'm not so sure that there is any real concrete uh, or uh, consensus. Um, I was reading something the other day, which I think goes back to the whole resiliency question that the ULIR study um, referenced, which is, in some ways, the the um, re- revisions in the insurance industry uh, and the investment profile or appetite of major inde- developers may have a, a, a self-correcting um, kind of impact, which would be that you know, insurance insurance rates and probably real estate taxes in these areas that are going to be impacted uh, will go up pretty dramatically and could do so in a fairly short period of time, you know, a 10 or 15 year period of time, which would make rebuilding and uh, and paying for the resiliency in that area so prohibitively expensive that people are going to go, eh, I'm out of here. Well, and, and it would be difficult for them to sell too. So there would be, so there could be a sudden or sloped or over a, a steep slope uh, decline in, in property value as a result. Absolutely. There's which would actually will leave at least a certain percentage of the population. I shouldn't say high and dry, maybe uh, low and low and wet, but. Um, but they would be exposed because there's a, uh, because they can't get enough value out of what they have to move to someplace else. Sort of that mentality that you see whenever a big hurricane comes in, a certain portion of the population wants to ride it out. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're going to have a you know people's reactions to things like that, really kind of across the continuum. Yeah, there's. I mean, I've already I've already seen places here and in Florida where there's been enough damage that, um, in, particularly in coastal erosion, where there's nothing there's nothing left to, to build, and there's there's places that are just about maybe an hour and a half north of San Francisco um, where the Erosion has been sufficient that there's just not enough space left to rebuild. So there's shells of homes just sitting there. Um, and north of uh, St. Augustine, in about two years ago, when they got nailed with Hurricane, um, the area 
just to the north of town. It had a series of lots and homes that were very, very uh, shallow lots. They were, uh, you know, I don't know, 50 feet from the, from the, the beach. And virtually all of those got red tagged. Uh, and I don't think half of them would be rebuilt. This is just improbable or, or impossible to, given the the uh, the you know, how much erosion has helped or happened. My little uh, apartment building that I lived in at Santa Barbara when I was uh, in college, we used to have a little deck out back, you know, overlooking the beach. And last time I was down here, that's gone. There are three apartment buildings just south of town here in uh, um, just south of San Francisco, which were torn down two years ago because of the cliff erosion. You, you know, is, 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 it, is it going to be kind of a, a slow erosion like you're describing um, that, will pick up, uh, that will pick up steam? Or do you think... Uh, because, you know, that's a little bit odd, you know, the idea of, you know, whoops, those three were there. And then five, year, five years later, they're gone, those three apartment buildings. I, I don't know that we get news of that. I don't know that the population is aware that that little by little, a lot of coastal real estate is already disappearing. I, I would think you're right, uh, <clears throat> partly because the... Um... You know the the level rise is, has been fairly moderate, um, but I I've got a good friend with whom I've worked for you know thirty years, who was involved with the the development of sea pines uh, in South Carolina back when it was really starting to go in the early seventies, and then she moved to Kiowa Island, which is just, uh, just uh, south of Charleston, and um, she and her husband live on the marsh, and there used to be 50, 75 feet of marsh land in the back of their house, and now the water is right under their deck. So it's, it is happening. They're very aware of it, and they probably be, will sell within the next year or two and go to a little higher ground because they just... They know that the uh, the value of the house long term is probably going to be impacted. Well, it, it it reminds me of that fragment of a poem that talks about uh, the fog coming in on cat's paws. Um, you know, it it seems like it's very subtle and over time, so uh, uh, you can actually you know sort of see it happening, but more easily in time lapse photography than in real life. True. True. It is is um. You know, kind of going back to to our attitudes toward coastal properties and resorts, um, when you started the idea of, of going to a coastal resort was driven by the relaxation of a beach, the idea that you were in a in a purely leisure oriented zone um, and, and a beautiful zone at that, you know, seeing the ocean, um, uh, you know, or seeing a bay. Um is 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 our idea of what a coastal edge looks like or how appealing it is is that going to change with you know an increase in hurricanes and and destruction 
Well, we actually begin to, and I say that because I know in, in just a generation, uh, we went from kids that went outdoors and spent all day outdoors to uh, people being, you know, actually afraid of the woods in some cases. Yet at the same time, we have people still trying to build into the into the forest in California, even though we now know with the fires, that's kind of a crazy thing to do. So how, how is how are we going to react? How how is our how is our psyche, you know, and its relationship to uh, to 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 the water's edge changed? And how do you think it will change? Well, I think the the issue that with hurricanes and natural disasters uh, in general. Uh, the increasing frequency and the increasing cost of that uh, is going to impact development patterns going forward. Um, I mean, you, in some ways, you're seeing it already in terms of um, uh, building code reinforce or enforcement uh, in the coastal zone areas. Uh, and in wind areas, you know, Florida in particular has, has dealt with that. Uh, there are places in the Caribbean that have, that have dealt with it uh, in terms of, you know, you can't have a certain type of roof. You've got to use certain tie downs for, for hurricane um, protection and, you know, things of that nature. Um, the... And I think also in terms of just saying you can't develop here. Um, um, so I, I think it is, it is changing. It's starting to become a, a bit more of awareness that we're, we're in trouble and we shouldn't do some things that are just plain stupid in terms of development. I, um, there was a period of time in the 60s and 70s when you know the second whole whole second home movement really took off um that we just we had no recollection or no 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 idea that we'd be in the situation we are now so is 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 that just a the curse of humanity that we we don't remember the long term that you know water's edges are are um are always changing and uh um and there's always more land to sell in Florida. Uh, I mean, is is there some of is this some of the huckster in us versus the the pragmatist or real knowledge? I think yeah, I think it's it's been been a short term, you know, approach to to people's mentality. Um, you know, if you look at the development community, their their investment time horizon is. Well, at least on the development side and the resort side, you know, they're looking at a you know five to seven year window of being in and out of a project. Um, they're not looking at what the place is going to look like thirty years later. Um, it, for the most part, now there have been there have been exceptions to that, but um, you know, most developers are you know they're. They've got a fairly short fuse in terms of uh, the the risk they're going to take and what their expectations in terms of reward are. I think also the the consumer uh, who has been attracted to the coast um, 
you know, the, the, the typical second homeowner really owns a house for about five or seven years and then they sell. So their, their approach is, is really, and the purchase decision has really been dri- driven by lifestyle uh, and uh, where they are in their life cycle. They're thinking of, we, we found a spot we really like, we're gonna go back to it. We've got the kids at a certain age, we will uh, enjoy it while we can and then we'll sell. There's not much of a, we're gonna own this as a legacy for the, for the family going forward. Um, so those two things kind of compound each other, I think. I mean, the, the National Association of Realtors every once in a while does their, their study and the, the, the uh, uh, not only the willingness, but the desire for people to own second homes. And every year it comes back and says, yeah, we'd rather be at the, on, the, on the beach versus any place else in the country. Or anyplace else for ownership. So, so what you're kind of saying there, with the development cycle five to seven years, and uh, second home ownership about a five-year average or maybe median, um, that really we've got two or three of those cycles probably ahead of us uh, before the the wave hits the fan. Um, is is would that be accurate, or or do you think a uh, and we probably within the movement within those time periods, you have people like your friends who really want to stay where they are, um, who were once on a wetland and are now finding that they want to stay where they are. So they're just going to pick a safer place. So they're going to move inland, but not that far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, I think any, any of us, we get pretty rooted to, to where we live and we want to stay kind of stay there as long as we can um you know it's kind of like if, if it ain't broke don't fix it um i think that one of the things that, that i think may change that mentality a bit is if um if the investment community and i'm talking you know banks and underwriters insurance companies start to really price price the risk of being on the coast the way it should be. And an example that was given is that, you know, we've got places that are under development that's been under long leases. So you've got a land lease, uh, you own the physical asset, but you don't really own the land. And, and as the lease starts to come up, for renewal, that asset tim, tends to decline in value because you know that whoever is going to buy that asset is going to have to renegotiate the lease and it's going to be more expensive. So there is some sort of price correction that goes on where there has been a, um, a long lease. Uh, and if you, if you start to see you know, the the real estate, you know, the, the infrastructure supporting these real estate purchases start to impact the, the pricing structure where it becomes more expensive uh, in to own in these locations that uh, you'll start to get some, you know, some pullback 
then people are just going to say, you know, it's not, it's not worth that much to, to be there. Well, you mentioned the, the short time frame for development, five to seven years, and typical home ownership for second homes, five years. Um, but the uh, but the home the homeowners, the second homeowners, are they typically getting the same twenty and thirty year mortgages that they are getting for their primary residences? Because if that's the case, that would suggest that somebody, you know, the lender doesn't want to be stuck with the last 15 years of that term. Well, and that's, that's what the, the, um, uh, the gist of this article that I was reading was, was hinting, which is, yes, the real estate community has historically been writing 30 year, 30 year mortgages. And, um, and, they were guilty as everybody else of doing liar loans uh, in the mid 2000s and all these other kind of wacky um, contracts and, and mortgages. Um, and what the gist of the article I was reading, and I wish I could re remember where I saw it, it was, it was hinting was as the we start to become, as, as the negative impacts in climate change start to become more apparent in the coastal zone, that there will be a correction on that. And it'll be much harder to, to secure uh, a mortgage because the industry is going to say, you know, that's too much risk. We're not going to do that. Now, one of the, one of the parts of the country that is likely to be less affected by climate change um, would be the would be the Great Lakes region, and uh, and we're also going to have. Uh, I'm not going to say that Chicago, where I live, is going to be exactly Miami on the lake, but the weather is supposed to be warmer here um, moving forward through time. Is is it is it possible that? And I know you and I have both worked on resort projects on the Great Lakes. Um, principally in northern Michigan, um, is is it is it actually possible that that some of these areas on the Great Lakes might actually become more appealing for coastal living? It isn't an ocean; it doesn't have waves. Um, who who do you think might be some of the, for lack of a better term, winners in something like this? I mean, other you know, will people want to want to have more rivers? You know, will they want to live on the on the Mississippi, will they want to live on, you know, um, you know, the Tennessee or something? Because it's it's actually water that draws us, and and the wide open vista that you can get with water. I think. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And you and I read the same the same material. You guys are going to be, you know, I've seen three to five year three to five degrees warmer than what you now experience on an average basis on an average year so um good for you um the uh and i and the same sort of the same studies from the national association of realtors you know people are asked where they want to be and beach always wins out but on the water it, if some body of water with a lake or a river is always number two. 
Yeah, I, I remember the uh, and 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 to that point, I remember one of the very first studies I did uh, when we were working together was pricing for a, a, a TPC course, and uh, I was in on a TPC course in in Michigan, and and you know the first word was you know the lots that are on the water they're the most valuable, uh, e even though you could theoretically be on a green, you know the ones on the water are the ones people really love. Um, so, so that, that draw to water is, uh, I don't know, something deep inside of us. It is, it is. And, um, you know, a great example is if you go to, if you go to Mexico, um, your, your beachfront is worth X. If you go across the street, it's worth half X. It's that much of a pricing differential. Uh, even though you might be across the street and be elevated 20 feet uh, and have a better view. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the proximity and the access, immediate water access that, that really drive, drive people. Has, you know, California and Oregon, or at least California, has always had high land cost. Or I shouldn't say always, but for, for a generation or two, it's had high land cost. Um, because you don't have that proximity, because you're often on a bluff on the coast of California, are land values different than you know being right on the water's edge in in North Carolina, or 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 is there like a local sort of lore that sort of feeds into the beauty of being on the on a coastal ridge? Don't know if we can really generalize the um, the appeal, I think, of, of, of real estate in different locations is, is, gonna, is, is, is pretty much local. Um, it kind of, yeah, it's what, you, it's what you can get for being in any particular location. Um, and it's, and it's, it's part sizzle. I mean, there's a good example uh, right now is uh, I just went to um, a discovery land project down in the Bahamas and uh, got a tour of what they're doing down there. Now, you can go to a lot of master plan communities in the Bahamas and buy <clears throat> a single family house with water view and maybe even water access. Um, for about $400 a square foot, four to $500 a square foot. In this particular little project, um, called Baker's Bay, is pricing their real estate at about $2,000 a foot. So, and, and they, have, they have a remarkable amenity package. I mean, they've got the, they've got the championship golf course, they've got three beach clubs, I've got uh, a marina. Um, they're very proud of the fact that they've got, you know, multiple billionaires as property owners. Um, but the, 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 uh, the, what they're getting in terms of the beach is pretty much like you can get beachfront at a lot of other places in the Bahamas. It's, and, same beach, same water. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same beach. It, it, you know, you, you know, you really had an interesting point there because 
Um, and that is and that is the value of amenities. And, uh, uh, it, it, you know, I, I've always, you know, thought of the value or the package of amenities that a development offers does have a lot to do with the price. And, and you've given us a really good example there. Um, or rather does have a lot to, yeah, has a lot to do with the price. But, but what I would, but what I would also wonder too is, is what about the communities, coastal communities? Um, you, you, you know, it, it strikes me that, that a lot of coastal, uh, a lot of coastal areas uh, are interesting not only for the views and for the housing, but they're also interesting um, because there are cool communities nearby. I wonder what the value of how much value there is in coastal property due to local communities and just the simple attractivity of that community, particularly as we move toward, you know, right now we're more than 60% of our households in America are one and two person households. So the idea of a large um, of a large house with many bedrooms is probably not as common of a uh, of a second home or a place to go uh, as a as, as maybe even an urban area that is on the beach too. You've really hit on a on a on a trend I think that's starting to happen. You know the big uh, showcase home uh, in a in a second home location. They're becoming dinosaurs and they're becoming very difficult to sell. Um, because people recognize that they don't need all that. They don't want to maintain it. Um, and you know, it's hard to get out from under them in some ways. It's hard to monetize it for the same value that they've got invested. Uh, I'll I'll tell you, here's a really good example when it's not, not, not necessarily coastal, but in terms of golf courses in the golf course communities, um, the, the members bought when they were in their 50s, for the most part. The average age of a second home buyer has been about 52, 53 for you know decades. It's, getting, it's, it's trending a little bit younger now with the millennials, um, but it's still been, you know, it's kind of one of these lifestyle deals. You, you, make, you buy it as a second home and then you may be looking for retirement down, down the road. Well, by the time they get to 70, the age of 70, they're not playing golf anymore. And they don't want to pay for the dues. And they don't, they don't want to pay for the membership. And so there is a couple of communities in the um, north of Charleston. And that, that's kind of where Sea Pines is and, and where a lot of these communities were developed that um which do happen to be coastal but they you know they so they had expensive golf memberships um and right now if you want to buy a lot in uh, a couple of these communities you can buy the buy the lot for a dollar but you have to take over the membership and the dues line. Oh, so so their business model has collapsed on them, and they're trying to revive it by 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 programming in the fact that you're going to be a member of the golf club, golf course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the membership in a lot of these places, uh, lot ownership was tied tied to membership. So 
you, if you, uh, and if I, if I not, if I'm, if it's costing me twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year to be a member at a golf course that I can't use, I don't want to be there. Well, I, I just, I just wrote a, re, a report this week that basically said, you know, golf tumbling and participation rate from roughly sixteen or seventeen percent at its peak to about seven or eight percent today. Has, has meant that golf courses just can't carry resorts like they used to. And um, perhaps ironically, you know, what I said is, you you know, going to the beach is still about 25% of the population every year. And, and swimming, which, of course, is not the same as going to the beach, is about 15 or 16% of the population a year. And as a result, um, uh, water actually is can carry a resort or aquatic uh uh, experiences uh, built into the resort or adjacent to the property can carry a resort better than golf can. Um, it, also in part because it has broader, broader appeal among the population. Um, but, sorry. Easily. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, have you followed the, uh, the rise of the crystal lagoons? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I actually now, did a couple of projects for them last year. Oh, did you? Good for you. We'll, we'll, have, um, to, we'll have to discuss that offline. Yeah. Um, when I first saw Crystal Lagoons, I was in Chile probably 15, 20 years ago, and you know, actually met the, met the developer, Fernando, and he at that point was, was pointing out that the value creation of the Crystal Lagoons concept was so dramatic that um, on the, in the little coastal town where he first developed one, the, there's a big second home market uh, for Chileans. Uh, typical product being a stack flat condominium, sometimes high rise, sometimes not. But most of, most of the places had, you know, the conventional swimming pool, maybe a tennis court, but that was that was the amenity package. And you know, that part of Chile, you cannot go in the water. It is absolutely treacherous and it's cold. So um, he goes and develops the Crystal Lagoon and pretty conventional real estate product. And he was getting a 60% price premium for the crystal, being on the Crystal Lagoon versus same same sort of uh, real estate product down the, down the beach with just a swimming pool. So so that might actually be, and I'm, I'm sure the Crystal Lagoons people would love to hear this, um, that might actually be part of the future of resort development along American coastlines. And that is to... Um, to treat the ocean's edge uh, as as a place to go visit and a place to you know hang out in when you can as a thing of beauty, but actually move some of the aquatic activity inland to the land side of the of the housing or um, or hotel product and uh, and and where it'll be a, frankly a little safer for the long run. And put in crystal lagoons or conventional water parks or attractive sort of water features, so that actually gives you just like a golf course on on the ocean. It gives you 
you know, two edges that have a higher value, um, which is to say the stuff that faces the ocean still will have a high value. And the stuff that faces the, you know, artificial but still beautiful uh, Crystal Lagoon or, or water park on the, on the land side will also have higher value. So there's almost a formula now for, for layering new development. Um, and, and it's quite not, not quite as simple as I'm describing it, but, but you know, it's, it's that kind of a combo platter of things as opposed to you know, just putting something right on the ocean because you really can't anymore. I think there's a good example of that in, uh, in Cabo San Lucas. Um, it's called Diamante, and <clears throat> it's a particularly treacherous part of the coastline. Uh, it's the, you know, Cabo San Lucas being the absolute tip of, of the Baja, and the, the water along there, um, you, it's a very steep beach, uh, tends to be cold, significantly colder than it is around the, around the point going up into towards the Sea of Cortez. And uh, big waves, can't get in, can't get in the water. Uh, and uh, this place built a golf course, uh, which was the first amenity and kind of stalled. Uh, they've also got an issue where that particular part of the coast is, is very windy in the winter and cold. Um, yeah, but so they built, uh, crystal lagoons and from where the crystal lagoon sits, you can't see the ocean, but they built a bunch of real estate right around it and sold it quite fine. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can see that. And, and that, that actually mirrors the original, uh, crystal lagoons project you were describing where the South Atlantic was so treacherous that. You, you just couldn't go in the water there, but man, it was beautiful to look at. Um, but the very first project looked at a flat area uh, where there was a crystal lagoon over the, the rocky edge of the ocean and into the ocean. So you got a view of both from, uh, from those units uh, because I think they were mid to high rise and sort of a single loaded type of product. So everybody got you know some taste of the same view. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think I think we're sort of hitting our our, our moment here, uh, where, where we should wrap this up. Uh, and and uh, and I just want to ask you, Greg, is there something else you you would like to have mentioned or meant or wanted to mention that uh, that hasn't come up? Well, I think we kind of kind of covered a lot of territory. Um, a lot of waterfront, you might say. A lot of a lot of waterfront. Uh, I think that the. I guess the main takeaway that I have from everything that I've been reading and seeing is that the, the both the real estate community and the consumer has got to recognize that uh, there is, for lack of a better term, is a tidal wave coming. And um, it may be 20 years or it may be 50 years, but there is a change coming that we've got to um, plan for and it's either you know restricting development or taking some sort of you know proactive resiliency measure to um to protect the coastline uh, both both are going to take a concerted effort um 
um, at probably the regulatory level. Well, um, let me let me close by asking you uh, how people can reach you. Uh, it's, uh, how do you, how do you get a hold of Great Corey? And that's C O R Y Corey. Right. Um, well, uh, easiest way, way is just uh, Greg Corey uh, at uh, landuseeconomics.com or Greg Corey at l u e l l c dot com. Um, and I've got to go on my webpage, and the contact information is all right there. Sounds great. Well, thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast, and uh, and this is uh, Dan Martin signing off for Next Gen Waterfronts, and uh, thank you for listening. Um, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.